Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, speak to us this morning and open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we meet this morning, I wonder what you think the world's biggest problem is. Certainly high up in the agenda is the apparent climate catastrophe. With COP26 coming up, global leaders seem to be viewing that as one of the biggest issues globally. Then we have poverty and disease. Certainly that will be up there along with the lack of adequate health care provision, education. And the common theme uniting all those issues is that we desire to be free from them. They're oppressive issues and we want freedom from the suffering they bring. Well, picture the scene. You're transported up north to the COP26 conference and you're being interviewed as a representative of the Christian church. And you're asked, what do you think the biggest problem in the world today is? Well, there are many uh, huge problems in the world today, you say. But the biggest problem of all is the problem of sin. And our biggest need is freedom from it. Ooh. The live camera feed is cut. The, The cameraman pans away and confused, maybe bewildered and baffled, the uh, suitably woke BBC presenter moves on swiftly to ask someone else for the vox pot. And I think that's where we are as a world, certainly in the West. I wonder where you are on that this morning. Do you think the biggest problem in the world is sin? Do you think your biggest problem is sin? And therefore, that the biggest need of the world is to be free from sin. Well, today we're going to have a peek behind the curtain, if you like. We're going to look into the deep spiritual realities of this world. And we're also going to consider how Jesus would answer that very same question. We're in the second half of Luke 4 this morning, continuing our series in Good News And the theme for today is that Jesus sets people free. Perhaps that sounds like a strange concept, the idea of Jesus setting you free. But it's a clear theme of the gospel and it's it's one that gives us deep joy when we grasp it. Now as our passage opens, what we see is that Jesus is preaching with great authority. It's a unique type of teaching. He's gone down to Capernaum. One of those helpful details that makes you realize the Gospels aren't just made up. He's gone down to Capernaum. And that's, of course, after the hostile reception he received in his hometown of Nazareth. And it's the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching the people in verse 31. And his teaching is grabbing people's attention. Because he's teaching differently. Not in a way they were used to. You see, ordinarily what would happen is rabbis would generally sort of repeat or regurgitate old teachings, teachings of previous rabbis, and it would all be something which people would nod and and, and agree with, but would find fairly unsurprising. It was what they expected to hear. But now, Jesus is bringing something different. We see that he is preaching in a unique way with great authority. 
Now, in, in a world where increasingly we seem to struggle with the idea of authority and authority figures, and we distrust those in power, the question that will be asked of Jesus is, can he deliver on his words? He speaks with authority, but will his actions back up this apparent authority? And that question, I think, is answered in the immediate next verse. He's still preaching in in the synagogue, which is where the Jews met for their weekly worship. And suddenly, a demon-possessed man appears with an impure spirit in verse 33. We see the demon cries out for Jesus to go away. And we can see why the, the demon asks the question, that shows the concern, the fear. Have you come to destroy us? You see, the demon recognizes that Jesus is the Holy One of God. There is a right fear of Jesus. The demon knows Jesus has authority. And Jesus displays that very authority as the demon is cast out of the man just with a word. With the word, he commands the demon to come out of him in verse 35. And with that same word, Jesus silences the demon and tells him to be quiet, to shut up, to not speak. He's exerting his authority and, and clearly he doesn't want the demon revealing his identity to the crowds. More on that in a bit. Demons, dark forces, difficult to get our heads around, isn't it? The question is, do we believe this part of scripture? What do we make of it all? In our relatively safe post-enlightenment 21st century industrialized world, with all the scientific and technological advancements we've made, aren't Forces of darkness and demons, just a bit ridiculous. It's not the whole idea of the devil and demons, just something consigned to a past era of superstition and folklore. Surely humanity's grown up and and now we understand this is nothing more than an out-of-date idea from old books and folk tales. In fact, if we think about these things at all, generally, we take it very lightly. It's a bit of fun. Strangely, we we, we sort of glory in it. We celebrate it. It's it's a bit of fun, the idea of Satan and, and demons and evil spirits. It's a bit of adult naughtiness, maybe some fun for the kids. It's quite strange, though, isn't it, that we do that? And, of course, today, on this uh 31st of October, Halloween, it's more than ever the case now, isn't it? Hollywood continues to trade in on the idea, making multiple millions of pounds from the devil and demons. But it's still a fair question to ask, isn't it? Maybe you've heard these stories from missionaries who come back from parts of the world, having experienced something dark or demonic in the work they were doing. Maybe you've heard testimonies of people experiencing evil powers. Of course, C.S. Lewis wrote that uh, very clever meditation on the idea of forces of darkness in his book, 
the screw tape letters, how the subtlety of those forces works in the West. It's an engaging read. You see, evil forces are still real, even if very subtle. I don't know if you've ever read about a tragedy that occurred or something awful that happened where the presence and the practice of evil in that situation had been so pronounced that it caused you to think that something deep and dark must be going on behind the scenes. Maybe you can think of it, something you read about in the papers or on the news websites where, where a, a, an example of addiction or abuse or violence took place that was so profound and excessive that it made you consider what forces must have been acting within that person and situation. Or perhaps, and here I am invoking Godwin's law, we read about the uh, horrendous atrocities committed by Hitler's Nazi regime. And as you read about those things... One has to ask the question, what dark forces were operating there? Such displays of wickedness. How is it possible that someone can give themselves over, as we saw under that regime, and it's not the only regime where we saw that, where someone's given them over so fully and profoundly to a darkness within. They've almost been overtaken by a force that has them acted out in such horrendous ways. And of course, the committed atheist has no answer to the problem of forces of evil, because evil in that objective sense doesn't exist within the atheist worldview. It just can't on principle. Because for evil to be objectively understood, it has to go against what we know to be objectively right and good. And you see, this is where the atheist argument in its thinking and logic ultimately has no ground to stand on when it comes to the problem of evil. It all just turns into subjective mush. It's a strange mantra, the atheist one. There's no God, but I hate him. Now, the simple fact is that the presence of evil in this world and the sense of dark evil forces operating within it are themselves strong evidence of God's existence. Because it's only in contrast to the goodness and holiness of God that we fully and objectively recognize its opposite in evil. And here we see these forces of darkness at work in an individual in verse 33, someone oppressed by a demon. Of course, in the first part of Luke 4, you might remember, we saw Jesus' victory over Satan. When in the wilderness, Satan tried to tempt him away from following the mission for which he was sent for. But now again, we see forces of darkness at work. This time, Satan's underlings, these demons at work, this demon-possessed man. Evil forces are real. Now look, today here in, in Chesham, I was, I was going to say on this wonderful morning, it's been a bit of a wet one, hasn't it? But today here in Chesham, it's probably fair to say that demonic oppression is not something you think you need to worry about. I don't know if you've heard or watched the Game of Thrones series, but there's a particular scene in that, which is where there's an enormous undead army 
And they're called white walkers. And nobody believes in these white walkers. People think it's just nonsense. In fact, only one person in the scene does, and that's Jon Snow. And he turns to his friend Tyrion and says, you don't believe me, do you? I do now, Tyrion replied. Because a few I know have seen them too. And I trust the word of an honest man more than what everyone else thinks they know. Jon Snow replies, but how do I convince people who don't know me that an enemy they don't believe in is trying to destroy them? That's a good question, isn't it? You see, evil forces and demonic oppression are not something I would say that even many in the, the church, many who call themselves Christians, probably think of as a, as a reality, as a threat. Perhaps we think it's naive or even dangerous to entertain the thought. Now look, of course, not all conditions in, in Scripture are pictured as being the result of demonic oppression. We, we see that with Peter's mother-in-law in verse 39. There are ailments, as we see with her, suffering from a fever, that, that come simply from living in a fallen world with all the results of that. But the truth of dark and evil forces working in this world is there very clearly in Scripture. Maybe you've heard of Dr. Richard Gallagher. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's also the professor of clinical psychiatry at New York Medical School. He trained at Yale, Princeton, and Columbia. And he now specializes in assigning the difference between mental health issues and demonic oppression. In fact, there was an article in the Telegraph about him exactly a year ago today. And here's a quote from that. As a psychoanalyst, the blanket rejection of the possibility of demonic attacks seems less logical and often wishful in nature than careful appraisal of the facts. As I see it, the evidence for possession is like the evidence of George Washington crossing the Delaware River. In both cases... Written historical accounts and numerous sound witnesses testified to the accuracy. And he goes on throughout the article to give many examples from his own experience. Maybe you've read that verse in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, elsewhere in Scripture, we see that theme running through. Clearly, we see in John's Gospel the idea of people being a child of the light or a child of darkness. But we'd like to think of ourselves as autonomous individuals, but we can't just assume we're some sort of default position. And against this cosmic spiritual battleground that we're caught up in, portrayed in Scripture, Jesus calls us to come for freedom and protection to him, to the light of the world. I don't know if you've seen the film 12 Years a Slave. It was a a film that was critically acclaimed. And in that, we see the shocking story of someone who had to endure the oppression of slavery. 
And in the face of that oppression, based very much on the reality of experience of many, many people who suffered under that awful regime, the broader culture in the film is depicted as having a despise and a contempt towards slaves. And in many ways, along with the obvious financial benefits, it was such a hard-hearted response in that culture that allowed that wickedness to prevail for so long. Now, wonderfully, as we know, William Wilberforce, fueled by his Christian convictions, fought hard in the political sphere to bring about freedom from slavery. But it took him most of his adult life, and he barely lived to see its fruition. But as much as we look on that awful period of history, there's still an ongoing slavery. A slavery to sin. To being held captive by our sinful desires under a dark oppression that only Jesus can set us free from. You see, there's darkness without Jesus, but there's freedom within And as Jesus looks on and sees people under that oppression this morning, people enslaved to their sinful desires, people enslaved to darkness, he doesn't look upon you and despise you. No, he he looks upon you with compassion and longs for you to come to him to be free. He longs for you to turn and receive the freedom he offers And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus sets people free. Free from sin, free from forces of darkness and into the light of Christ. We see that in the passages. He sets this demon-possessed man free and later many others. If you sense you're not in Christ, come to him today. Come into his light. Amidst this dark world, Come to Christ the light. Don't continue walking down the path of this life alone, vulnerable to the darkness. Don't just tip your hat to Jesus and acknowledge him. As James 2 tells us, and as we see here even, the demons do that. They acknowledge Jesus. No, Jesus calls us to actually come before him and surrender our lives to him. Why don't you put your hand into the hand of God this morning? And that is, of course, who we're considering today as we look at Luke 4. Both these miracles here of healing, they serve a purpose that's pictorial. They're designed and recorded for us so that we might see that they point to something greater than the miracles themselves. They point to the very identity of Jesus as the Messiah. It's the identity that Jesus won't let the demons speak of. And that's because it was a hugely loaded term for the Jews of that time. And here in Luke 4, Jesus is not yet ready to reveal himself fully. You see, he knows that politically people would misinterpret things And try and do the very thing that's attempted in verse 42. They try and keep him. And it's no wonder they don't want Jesus to leave. He's emptied the hospitals. He's brought the crime rate down. 
But Jesus has a far bigger purpose. Verse 43. He's not come to bring health and healing to one town at a specific point in history. Not come to bring political freedom from the Romans. No, he's come to fulfill a universal and eternal mission. He's not even been sent fundamentally to deal with poverty or sickness in this world. No, he's come to solve our greatest problem of all, which is our need to be free from sin. That's why he's been sent. And just as he has been sent to that end, so we must proclaim him. We must proclaim the gospel to the watching world. Social action is very important. It has absolutely its place. But we mustn't get distracted from the fundamental purpose because like Jesus, we must be about bigger things than temporal and visible needs. We need to look upon humanity with eternal eyes. Verse 43, Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news good news of the kingdom of God to other towns. There's always going to be need here in Capernaum, but I must go on. I must proclaim the good news elsewhere. Because it's only the good news of Christ that sets people free eternally from sin. From sin and death and the forces of darkness, from the devil and his demons. We can't fight them on our own. Standing alone, we'll just be taken down by them. We need someone to fight for us. We need someone to defeat Satan and sin. And wonderfully, Jesus has done that for us already on the cross, where he destroyed them forever. But now, in these last days... We must turn to him and join him and join his side in this cosmic spiritual battle. And that's God's purpose for you and for your life as a Christian. So much today in the culture, oh, what's my purpose? Here's your purpose. It's to come to God, to the light of Christ. And look, we see Simon's mother-in-law, she's healed, she's saved from her fever and immediately she gets up and serves and so we do the same that's the response as we come to Jesus and are healed and delivered from slavery to sin we're delivered and set free for a purpose to serve and you see being set free to serve is where true freedom is found I think it was John Stott that said it's in giving our lives away in service that we find ourselves And therein is the great peace and joy of the Christian life. Serving purposefully in God's kingdom is true freedom. This is good news for you. Amen.